right, open your Bibles to John chapter 17. And I want to just quote a passage out of Hebrews that says that the Word of God is quick and powerful. In other words, it's alive. Everybody say, it's alive. The Word of God is alive. In other words, not only is it's not just ink on a page, it's a living thing. Have you ever heard that the Declaration of Independence is a living document? How many know that the Word of God is a living document? In fact, I believe that the Bible is Jesus in written form. And we're going to shift gears next week, but I'm going to continue along the same lines what we talked about last week. And let me just say, if you were not here last Sunday... Uh, that was my favorite sermon of the year so far for, for me personally. I mean, if you got the preacher saying, that was a good message, I want to encourage you to go back and listen to it. I really enjoyed it, not because I presented it so well, but just the material that we covered last week to me is so encouraging, and I hope that it builds faith in your heart that you have what you have is for what we call the Bible, the Word of God, is reliable, life-giving, that it has not been changed over the years. And, and, I, and I, I try to talk to uh, young folk, which is getting easier and easier all the time. Because there's more of them all the time. Anyway, I'm getting older. Anyway, so, but my point being is that uh, some, one of the questions that our younger generation have, and even some of our, our old folk, they're legitimate questions. And the good news is there are answers. I want to go ahead and go on the record as saying I do not know all the answers. Uh, by, by any means, but at the same time, I want to be a guide for you today. So here's a question that we've been, we've been talking about. How do we know the Bible is true? It's a good question, isn't it? It's fair. How do we know the Bible is true? How do we know the Bible has not been changed over the centuries? To um, you know, How do we know that people, smart people haven't just manipulated it to say what they wanted it to say so they could get us to do what they wanted us to do? Right? It's a legitimate question. Like, for example, surely that tithing thing about giving 10% of your income, surely man added that because God would have never put that in there, right? That was some preacher's idea. Okay, so how do we know that the Bible hasn't been changed or altered and that it is like the original? Anybody else want to know that? We've been talking about why the Bible and why not some other book or some other system of thought. Like the Hindu Gita or the Quran or the, the Mormon's Watchtower book, or why not? Why the Bible? These are good questions. Well, I'll give you a free thought here, and that is that one good reason is that unlike some of the religions I just mentioned, we don't update the Bible every year and say, here's 2020's copy. It's the same yesterday, today, and forever. I know you don't have to update the truth. Now, it's true that this bottle is full of water, but by the time the second service starts, that will no longer be true. Just because something is true doesn't mean that it's unchanging. But when something is truth, it doesn't change. It stays the same. You see the difference? So, John chapter 17, and Jesus is talking here. In verse 17, he says, Thy word is truth. Sanctify them by your word. Thy word is truth. Not thy word is true. 
but thy word is truth, meaning it doesn't have to be updated. Now, on this peg of Scripture and eternal truth hangs everything that we believe as Christ followers. So I will say that if, if the Bible can be disproved, or if we can see that there are discrepancies in the Bible, or things that don't add up as a pattern over and over and over again, then we can not have confidence in it that it can guide our lives. But if the opposite is true, then uh, we know that we can with confidence do what it says and then receive the benefit of what it says. Now again, this isn't in my notes, but just the volume of lives that have been transformed by it should be testimony enough. But there's a lot more evidence that demands a verdict. Okay, so let's get into it a little bit today because we're trying to build a bridge from your head to your heart. I know a lot of you, well, I could just say that, I know a lot of you, and I know a lot of you already believe the Bible, and you're like, hey, I read it, and it changed my life, and it works for me, and it, okay, I got it, and I appreciate that, but there are a few who don't, and then there are those of you who do believe it already, and it's a part of your life, I want you to have an intellectual confidence that what you believe in your heart is founded on evidence. Is that okay with you? Because we're not asked to believe the Bible without verification. You ever heard the, phrase, the, the term, uh, well, you just take it on blind faith? You ever heard that? Can I just tell you, that's an oxymoron because faith is not blind. Real faith actually sees. And real faith actually sees things that the natural eyes can't see. That's another sermon for another Sunday because faith sees the invisible, believes the incredible, and receives the impossible. That's real faith. All right, so in other words, truth as a category does exist. Say, so, well, of course it does, Pastor Kevin. You, would believe how many, you wouldn't believe how many people don't believe that statement, that truth doesn't exist. Or relativism, truth is whatever you believe it is. Well, that might be true for you, but it's not necessarily true for me. You ever heard that? Okay. Well, how many know that truth, absolute truth, exists as a category? It's like, well, I don't believe in God. Well, you're going to stand before him and give an account for your life one day anyway. Not believe. I could say I don't believe in gravity, but how many know that it's not going to change the fact that gravity is working either for me or against me? Because it's a law, right? Okay, so truth as a category does exist. And it's, and it's possible in the majority of claims, whether they're philosophical claims, historical claims, to verify the, truth, the truthfulness of those affirmations. So if somebody says something, and I'm, I'm aware that a lot of times now in this day and age, we got, a ton, we got hundreds of people watching us online. The, the, the first service is the largest attended service that we have. Not necessarily in people in the room. That's the second service. But people watching us online every week, this first service, it's hundreds of people that watch us. Sometimes three to 700 people will watch us. They're watching us right now. So how I many know we're in a new day, Right? And we have, we have church members that don't even live in our city. We have church members that they attend virtually. Now, I'm not giving you permission to do that. 
But we have people that, that do that. And so we live in a new day and a new era. And so as I'm teaching and preaching, I'm aware that there are people sitting there at their computer. They're Googling well, what I just said to see if it's true or not. Okay? Because I don't know if God doesn't know Google does. I'm just kidding. I'm kidding. That's what people think. If they need answers, they go to Google before they go to God. That's the day that we live in. But let me just tell you something. God knows what stuff that Google hadn't even thought about yet. And he can make those things available to us. After World War II, there was a philosophy called existentialism. And existential just means the, being concerned about human existence or, or why we exist. There was a survey taken that if there was a God and you could ask him any one question, what would you ask him? And 94 to 96% of the people said, I would ask God this, why am I here? Or what do you want me to do? Existentialism, why do I exist? And by the way... Again, not in my notes, but just for your information, Christianity is the only religion that satisfactorily answers these four questions. Origin, where we come from. Meaning, what does my life mean? Morality, right and wrong. And destiny. No other religion answers those four major questions. Maybe that's another sermon for another Sunday as well. But after World War II, people began to question the existence of a moral deity, because surely a moral deity could never allow the atrocities that happened in World War II. And, it's, and again, it's a fair question. But how many know when you look for your answers outside of God's word, you don't necessarily get the truth. You get things that may be true, but they're changing. Or you get things that may appear as though they fit the circumstance, but God's word, somebody asked, me not long ago, well, how can this old ancient book apply to my modern life here in 2020 and beyond? And the answer is simple, that this ancient book we call the Bible came, didn't come from time, from 1,500 years or 3,500 years ago. It came from eternity outside of time, and that's how it speaks to all times, all cultures, all languages, all people of all places. Because it's a message from the creator to the created. And aren't you glad that uh, you've heard the, there's a big de debate between atheistic um, uh, evolution and, and uh, intelligent design and creation, right? So to say that, yes, bang, big bang theory and, and something came out of nothing, which doesn't... It, they say they're basing their, their theory on, on science, but for something to come out of nothing just doesn't make scientific sense, by the way. I mean, at the, at the core of it. But God is the only self-originating, self-sustaining, without, without cause. He's the causeless one in, in the sense that he exists all by himself. And before anything else existed, he was, right? And in him, we, we live and move and have our being. But to say that the universe came into existence by the Big Bang, a Big Bang, is kind of like saying that the way we got our dictionary is that a printing press blew up, and when all the dust settled, we had a dictionary. It makes about that much sense. So we know that even if you don't believe in Jesus and God the Father and all that, just intelligent design, that if there is a design, there must be a designer. Right? Can we agree on that? And just think about, speaking of books just happening, you know, if we had a beautiful book, I should have brought one from my office, you know, pictures from places that I've been, and just to think that ink fell out of the sky and black uh, 
city things appeared on the page and created words and letters. And this thing that all that happened by, by chance. Well, uh, the, a book, we know that a book doesn't happen by chance. There has to be intelligent thought and planning. And some books have more intelligent thought than others, obviously. But they don't just happen, right? They have to be initiated. So think of, you know, you know what scientists call DNA? They call it the book of life. And if you took your, your DNA has about 46 chapters, 46 chromosomes, and every, every, every strand of DNA has three point something billion bits of information. And if you took all of the information that just your body's DNA has we could, and stacked it up, we, it would go to the sun and back. Just you, the book of life written about you. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. There's millions of little cells in your eye that allow you to see light and color just in one eyeball. And so don't tell me that just it happened by accident. You were designed. And just the word information means that you had to be informed. And we know the word formed is a part of that word information. And so where did that forming come from? Even if you don't believe in Jesus, you have to believe that something greater than us. Well, aliens seeded the earth. And, okay, okay, where'd they come from? I mean, come on, man. Where were we going to? We know that we have a book not just from antiquity, but from eternity that gives us the answer to all these things. Man, I got to keep moving because I'm telling y'all stuff that's not in my notes. <laughs> all right, last week, quick summary. We discussed that if the Bible made several assertions that we found out to be false, like historically false, that there was no such thing as, as Nineveh, which they used to believe until the mid-1800s. The Bible can't be true because there's no such place as Nineveh. There's no ancient city that you can walk across in three days. They don't have them that big. Well, then they found Nineveh. Or how about this one? Well, they used to say that the Bible wasn't true because there was no such thing as Jericho. Well, they, when they finally found it, they were puzzled as to why they had to dig so deep for it. Why is it? What, let me tell you what happened. You know, the walls of Jericho, they didn't just fall down. There were angels that shoved the walls down into the earth, just like the, the wall was there. And then all of a sudden, boom, God said, all right, wait thing now. And everybody was walked in, took over. They had to dig so deep because God shoved the whole thing down into the ground. And that is an archaeological fact. Google it. Look it up. Look it up yourself. And so here's what I want to tell you, that there is a Jewish archaeologist his name is Gluck or, or something like that. I have it in, in my notes, but you can Google him too if you want to know how to spell it. See me after the service. But he made in a phenomenal statement. Let's see if I can find his quote in, in my notes somewhere. Um, because he said it so much more eloquently than I will say it. Okay, I, I, I can't find it. Oh, here it is, here it is. He said, it may be stated categorically that no archaeological discovery has ever been controverted, uh, no archaeological discovery has ever controverted a biblical reference. In other words, there's never ever been an archaeological discovery that contradicted or disputed the claims of Scripture. Yet, and this is, this is a Jewish archaeologist. He's not even a Christ follower, but yet he says nothing. In fact, everything that we have discovered archaeologically has actually proven Scripture, not the opposite. That's archaeology speaking. So archaeologically, we know the Bible is true. Historically, we know that its claims have been, have been um, uh, confirmed. And, and just think about this, that the collusion factor 
would have to be so incredible to bring the, to pass the hundreds of prophecies that were spoken 700, uh, 1,500 years before Jesus was ever born about him. Hundreds of prophecies, they all converged and came to pass in the person of Jesus Christ. And by the way, that's a mathematical improbability at best for one person. But he fulfilled every prophetic scripture hundreds and even sometimes over a thousand years before he was ever born. And the collusion factor to bring all that to pass retrospectively would have to be, it would be beyond any technology that we even have today to bring that to pass, much less 2,000 years ago. Do you see what I'm saying? That, that, that Jesus, not only is his book a miracle book, he's a miracle man. And he said, I am that book. I am the word of God. In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God, and the word was God, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. He said, here I am. In fact, I am. And he sent his word, and he healed them. Okay. Man, do you see why I wish this series was just like, you know, six months long? And some of you are thinking like, how much longer is this going to be today is what I want to know. All right. <laughs> I'm sure we'll get through this in the short three hours we have together. Let me just keep going here. Here's an interesting thought. Just little factoids. The Bible, 66 books. Six is the number of man, which I, nothing's by accident, right? 39 in the Old Testament, 27 in the New Testament, written by 40 different writers, but only one author. Here's how it's different. It's, it's, it's a distinctive book. It's not like Buddha's teachings, which are just little collections of his sermons that... That, by the way, the, the summary of Buddhism is extinguish all desire and there is no God. That's it. That, that's Buddhism in a nutshell. And when you die, you'll, be, you'll come back as something else until you get it right. All right. So, that's why I don't live my life based on that book. Um, or how about the Quran, which is the utterances of one man, Muhammad who allegedly the Quran was dictated to him by Allah himself and then recorded in writing posthumously after he was dead. So how do we check that accuracy? I don't, I don't know. But, um, but the Bible, written by 40 writers, one author, over a 1,500-year period from the mid-1400s B.C. to the first century, and they written by in three different languages on four different continents in different countries in different times of history. But they all say the same thing and there's one common thread. And they all converge and manifest in the historical person of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. You couldn't plan that as a human being. This book had to come from outside of time itself. And the book that we call the Bible, no book has been more studied, no book has been more scrutinized, no book has been more persecuted by its friends and foes, no book has been burned more, no book has been um, read more, and no book has changed more lives across history than the Bible. And it does not run from the scrutiny, it presents itself and says, go ahead, go ahead. Now, no other religious book does that. In fact, it's forbidden in Islam for you to criticize or try to find discrepancies in their holy book. But the Bible just says, come on, hit me with your best shot. If you can find something that's not true, but you can't. 
I remember when I was a Bible college student, I had uh, a wonderful professor named Cooper Beatty. He had to be as old as dirt. I mean, this guy was in his 90s, and he was still teaching. And we called him Machine Gun Beatty because he talked so fast we just couldn't take notes. We just had to sit there and listen and hope that we got the stuff we needed for our exams. Brilliant man. And he taught one day uh, that he was, he was speaking with someone who said, well, the Bible is just full of discrepancies. It contradicts itself. And he goes, okay, well, let's talk about it. Give me one. And they said, well... Um, in the Old Testament, it says that because of sexual immorality, God sent a plague and 24,000 people died. He said, yeah, that's right. But in 1 Corinthians 10, Paul, the apostle, wrote, he said that 23,000 died. He goes, where's the missing thousand? Professor Beatty thought about it. He turned to 1 Corinthians and he says, there's no discrepancy here. He said, yeah, Old Testament says 24,000 died in the plague. And in the New Testament, it says 23,000 died. You can look it up in 1 Corinthians 10. And he goes, no, that's not what it says. And the man said, yes, the Bible contradicts itself. It can't be true. How can we trust it? He goes, no, it says in 1 Corinthians that 23,000 died in a day. That was just in one day. 24,000 died during the whole plague, but 23,000 of them died in one day. There's no discrepancy there. It doesn't contradict itself. It just provides more detail. So if we could find just one historical inaccuracy in Scripture, then it would give us the right to question anything else that we find in Scripture. But it's not there. Every time they try to, the higher critics try to find discrepancies, historically, they're not there. It is, um, in fact, at Princeton University, which is not a uh, bastion of conservatism, as you probably know, the leading New Testament scholar in America by the name of F.F. Uh, F. Uh, I'm sorry, by the name of Dr. Bruce Metzger. And then his colleague, who's the greatest British New Testament scholar, F.F. Bruce, <clears throat> they have concluded that from, just from a secular scientific perspective, and as, when it comes to the art of bibliography, that, which is not studying the Bible, by the way, that's studying the accuracy of ancient documents, that, that the Bible is 994 to 99.6% accurate from a historical uh, as far as it's being the same as the original, you can't say that about Shakespeare. Or, you know, the, the, there's over 5,000 documents in the bibliography of the Bible, meaning you can go back and you find 5,000 pieces. The, the second place in that contest from books from antiquity is Homer's Iliad. With 193, I think, or 163. I don't remember if the nine, my nine in my head is, or a six. But anyway, let's say it's 193. That's second place. The Bible has over 5,000. I say, that doesn't mean anything to me. Have you ever wondered why people go, well, how do we know that the Bible is the same as the original? I've never once heard somebody, you know, talk about Shakespeare and wonder, I wonder if they have changed, you know, Romeo and Juliet to manipulate the people, or if it's really, is, if it's true to the, to the original Nobody ever asked that. But yet there's more mountains of evidence to confirm that about the Bible than any, any other book from antiquity, from ancient times. Hands down. There's not even a close second place. So, having said all that, that's why we call it the Bible, which in the Latin just means the book. The book. The holy book. In other words, it's not a book. It's the book. It's the book of all books. 
It's still the number one bestseller of all time, and it stands as the authority in mankind that confronts us about our origins, our meaning, our morality, and our destiny. In fact, Jesus, he began his ministry by saying, it is written. And he ended his ministry by revealing himself in scripture to those on the road to Emmaus. He is the word of God made flesh. So I'm saying all that to say that when you read your Bible, it's actually reading you. And it's putting life into you. It's actually speaking to your genetic code and to your DNA. And it can even reprogram your genetic code and your DNA. And by the way, you are beautifully, wonderfully made. Made in the image of God. No other religion says that you're made in the image of God. But Christianity says you are because it's the truth. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And he said, let us make man in our own image. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. You, have, you are a three-part being, spirit, soul, and body. You're made in the image of God. You ever want to know what God looked like? <laughs> Look in the mirror. He looks like you and me. You say, well, then why are there different colors and different... Because God likes variety, and it, it takes all the ethnic groups put together to even get an idea of what God looks like because he's manifold and beautiful. And you cut us all, we all bleed the same, we all have the same genetic DNA code. It's not different, it doesn't matter what color you are. There ain't nobody from another planet, nobody's genetically different, we're all the same. You put us under a microscope, you can't tell what color we are, unless you're looking at our skin. My daddy used to say, uh, son, because you know, well I won't tell you more than that, but he used to say, it's Father's Day, right? He said, son, beauty is only skin deep. He said, but ugly goes all the way to the bone. <laughs> Now, now, punctuate the fact that Jesus said not one letter shall go unfulfilled of this scripture. With the fact that he was raised from the dead. Then you have, by the way, raised from the dead, indisputably raised from the dead. It's not just, I mean, we have evidence that would hold up in the court of law today. We have hundreds of eyewitnesses. So if you, could, if you could just produce the dead corpse, the bones of Jesus, then, then all, all of what we believe would be undone. But you can't. People are still trying. It'll never happen. And one day he's going to come in the sky and go, y'all looking for my bones? Here they are. And they're, they're going to look on the one that they pierced. Then they'll believe, the Bible says. I mean, that letter is going to come to pass as well. But you punctuate all this with the fact that all prophecies converged in him. He lived, fulfilled the prophecies. He died in our place, rose from the dead. You have the strongest endorsement of authenticity of Scripture that you can find. Jesus quoted from every book of the, of the Old Testament except for the book of Esther that, that I'm aware of. So that he's validating every Old Testament Scripture. He did not quote from the Apocrypha, by the way. So we have the amazing Word of God. God's word is medicine. The Bible says it's life and health to your bones. In the beginning, what happened? God said. What does that mean? He said words. He spoke. And it all came into being. Like, what, like one guy goes, I believe in the Big Bang Theory. God spoke and bang, there it was. And when you look at everything at its essence, scientists tell us that everything is made of a... Of a little particle called a quark, which is made out of sound waves, 
Where do you think those are? All things are held together by the word of his power. Everything's held together by God's word because that's how it came into being. God spoke and there it was. So just think of what happens when you speak God's word. Bang! Stuff happens. Good stuff happens, right? Because his word is alive. It's quick and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. He sent his word and healed them. His word is health to our flesh and nourishment to our bones. His word is a lamp unto our feet, a light unto our path. Oh, man, his word. It's the bread of life. It's the water of life. It's eternal. God's word tested Joseph, and he passed the test. How many of God's word tests you too? And when you pass the test, your promotion is coming, and we know that Joseph became the prime minister. God's preparing you for something greater. And his word tests you, and it refines you like a crucible, like silk, getting the dross out of silver, because he's preparing you for your next step. We all have a next step. There's a promotion in your future, saith the Lord in Jesus' name today. I'm prophesying to you. And what's God's word do? It prepares you for that promotion. It prepares you for what's next, because you are a part of a brand new race. The anointed race, the Christ race, the Christian race. Sin will keep you away from your Bible, but the Bible will keep you away from sin. Songwriter once wrote, how beautiful must the words be before they conquer the heart. The truth is there is no such word that exists. God gave each of us the dignity of having a free moral will to choose Because there's no word more beautiful than Christ himself, but we must choose him volitionally. And God gave you the intelligence. He gave you the evidence to choose Christ. Scripture says that we may know how to answer each person. You know where it says that in the New Testament? That we might give a reason for this hope. That we may know how to answer each person. Not that we may know how to answer each question, because questions don't need answers People need answers. And that's why God gave us the scripture. He gave us the word. And when we hide his word away in our heart, you may not be able to you know, explain where dinosaurs came from or where they went or you know, uh, all these you know, arguments. You don't have to be uh, an apologist to share Jesus. You don't have to know science and hermeneutics and homiletics and theology and archaeology and all these things. You just have to know one thing. you got to know Jesus. He's the word of God. And even if you just say, all I know is that my life was messed up, and then Jesus came into my life and changed everything. Your testimony, there's power in your testimony. But I want you to see today that you have evidence. You have indisputable evidence as to why you believe what you believe. You know, there's a difference between a skeptic and a cynic. A skeptic is someone who will not believe until evidence is provided. A cynic is someone who will not believe even when it is provided. And so you can know quickly, if you're talking to a skeptic, that's good. They want evidence, give it to them. But if you're talking to a cynic, you give them the evidence they still don't believe, then pray for them, but don't waste your time. Now, uh, two quick examples of archaeology Confirming scripture. Number one, the existence of the Hittites. I'm not going to talk about the termites and cellulites today, but the Hittites. A.H. Sace, in the 19th century scholar and archaeologist, first identified the ancient Hittite people from a non-biblical source. While their existence was disputed for years, oh, the Bible can't be true because there's no such thing as the Hittites. Well, then in the 19th century, they found 
overwhelming evidence archaeologically and historically in other writings of the Hittites. And so today there are hundreds of extra biblical references to this civilization confirming that the Hittites existed as described in the Bible. Number two, the fact concerning Quirinius in the New Testament. Many people say that Quirinius was not governor when the census was taken. Let me just read it to you. Critics once argued that there was no census at the time of Jesus' birth. And so the Bible, the New Testament must not be true. That Quirinius was not the governor of Assyria, as the New Testament states, as recorded in Luke chapter 2, if you can look, at that, look that up. However, archaeologists have discovered from extra-biblical sources showing from history that the Romans held a census every 14 years. That's a historical fact. And based on an inscription found in Antioch, and a date recorded by Josephus, the Jewish historian, they now believe that Quinarius was governor of Syria twice. Once in 7 B.C., and of course we believe Jesus was born around 4 B.C., and again in 6 A.D. They had evidence of him being governor in 6 A.D., but not in 7 B.C., so they said, well, the New Testament must not be true because it said Quinarius was governor. He wasn't governor until 6 A.D. He was governor twice. Ever heard of somebody running and getting elected twice? He, he ran, he was done, and then he ran again, or however, there was appointed again, so he was governor of Syria twice, and that is now historically corroborated with Scripture. So again, archaeology and history did not dispute the Bible, but again, it confirmed its accuracy. And I know some of you don't care about this kind of stuff, and others, others of you are eating it up. Um, so just stay with me. Because I want to tell you a story before I conclude today. Remember last week I told you the story about my friend Samson? Not the guy in the Bible. This is, a, for those of you who weren't here, I'll give you a quick recap. I was in Calcutta, India over a decade ago. And I went to a little restaurant, a little cafe called the Blue Sky Cafe on Siddhar Street. I used to eat breakfast there every Saturday morning with my little boy when we lived there. But I was back visiting, and when I walked in, I hadn't been there in a couple of years, Samson, one of the waiters there, he said, Oh, Mr. Kevin, oh, my God, it's so good to see you. Where have you been? Oh, that's a long time. Please come and sit down. And he, I sat down in my usual place, and he remembered my order from breakfast from two years ago. The guy's brilliant. And so in my heart, I said, I should, tell, I should share the gospel with this guy. But I knew he was a Muslim. Calcutta is about a 40% Muslim city, although India is about 90% Hindu, but they live near Bangladesh, which is a Muslim nation. So I said, Samson, we've known each other a long time. He said, yes, November 1997 is the first time you came into my cafe. I said, wow. I'm like, well, there's something I've never told you that I need to tell you. May I share it with you? He said, of course, you're my friend. Tell me anything. I said, well, in your holy book, the Quran, it says that Isa, or Jesus, is going to come again one day. He goes, Yes, I just read it the other day. And, and, and I wanted to know why. So I went to my cleric at the mosque and I said, Sir, why is Jesus coming again like the Quran says? And even my cleric, he doesn't know. I said, Well, that's what I want to tell you. I want to tell you why Jesus is coming again. He goes, Yes, I want to know very much. I said, And I preached the gospel to him as found in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 and 4. Again, 1 Corinthians 15, one of the most important chapters in the New Testament. That's your homework assignment. Go read it. So I, he didn't know this, but I was quoting 1 Corinthians 15, 3, 4, and 5. I said, well, Jesus died for your sins. Remember, the only book from antiquity that says that Jesus did not die is the Quran. Every other historical source says that he did die and was buried. And some of those sources say he was raised from the dead. Other sources say his body mysteriously went missing. I mean, so histor history records it. Some happened. But nonetheless... It, um, 
Muslims do not believe that Jesus died. In fact, the Quran says that he appeared to die, but he didn't die. And that's what I'm so I knew this about my friend's belief system. But I, I quoted the scripture to him. Jesus died for your sins. He said, no. I said, Samson, they buried him. He said, no. On the third day, God raised him from the dead. He said, no. And I said, Samson, all this happened according to the Holy Scriptures, the Bible. He said, no. I said, now, I want to tell you why Jesus is coming again. He goes, yes, yes, that's the part I want to know. I said, he's coming again to judge everyone who does not believe what I just told you. And he went, oh, my God. Just like that. Oh, my God. Why? Because his head was saying, no, that's not true. No, that's not true. Jesus appeared to die, but he didn't die. But the gospel is the power of God and the salvation. So when I shared the gospel with him, bam, something hit him in the heart. His head said no, but his heart said, oh, my God. I'm having a struggle. That bridge between the head and the heart was being built. He said, oh, my God. And he goes, what should I do? You know, in Scripture where it says, people say, what must I do to be saved? It was like, he goes, what should I do? I said, you should believe what I just told you. He goes, I don't know how. I said, give me your hand. He gave me his hand. I led him into prayer of salvation. And right there on Sadar Street in the Blue Sky Cafe in Calcutta, India, my friend Samson, the former Muslim, became Samson, the Christ follower, born again. The word of God came on the inside of him, transformed him into a brand new creature in Christ. Come on, somebody. Now, here's the rest of the story. That day, I said, Samson, what's your favorite language? Because he spoke seven languages. But he only read four. And he's waiting tables at a cafe. I said, I'm telling you, you get the Indians born again, filled with the Holy Spirit, they're going to change the world. Google Ravi Zachariah, and you'll see what I mean. So I said, um, what's your favorite language to read in? And uh, I think he said Urdu, which is Actually, the language of Pakistan, it's spoken almost identically to India's language, Hindi, but it's written like Arabic. It's written opposite of Hindi, but spoken almost the same. More information than you care to know, but just throwing it out there. So I walked down the street about a block away to the Indian Bible Society, and I got him an Urdu New Testament, and I brought it back to him. And I said, read this. He said, I will read it every day. I said, okay. I came back in 48 hours to check on my friend because I was flying out of Calcutta. I said, did you read that book I gave you? He goes, oh, yes, very nice. I said, well, what did you think? Oh, it's very nice. He said, but I have a question. I said, sure. He goes, where's the rest of the book? I said, what do you mean? He goes, it's talked about Abraham. I know who Abraham is, but I couldn't find him in the book. It talked about Isaac. It talked about Adam. It talked about Noah, but I couldn't find their stories in the book. I go, oh, you want the Old and New Testament. He goes, yes, I want the whole thing. I'll be right back. I walked down to the Bible Society. I paid for him an Urdu Bible, the Old and New Testament. I brought it to him, and I said, read it. He goes, I will read it every day. I came back in two weeks to check on him. I said, Samson, did you read that book I gave you? He goes, yes, I read the whole thing. I said, the whole thing? He says, twice. I said, you read the whole Bible twice in two weeks? He goes, it's very nice. I said, Samson, will you read it every day? He goes, of course. He looked at me like he was offended. Of course. I will read it every day. Of course. Listen, there was an innate hunger in him for the word of God. Like a newborn baby craves the sincere milk of the word. He was craving the Bible. He said, oh, I read it every day. I read it every day. I said, did you read it the whole thing twice in two weeks? I know Christians that have never read the whole thing through once in their whole life. 
One last story before I let you go today. I hope you're getting something out of this. In April 1998, I'm sorry, April 1988, the evening news reported on a photographer who was a skydiver. He had jumped from a plane along with numerous other skydivers, and he filmed the group as they fell, opening their parachutes, and he was documenting the whole thing. And on the film, on the telecast, they actually showed this on the news, the, fi the, uh, the final skydiver opened his chute. Then the picture on the camera went crazy and went berserk. The announcer reported that the cameraman had fallen to his death, having jumped out of the plane without a parachute. It wasn't until he reached for the absent ripcord that he realized that he was free-falling without a parachute. Until that point, the jump was probably really fun and exciting. But tragically, he had acted with thoughtless haste and deadly foolishness, according to the article. Nothing at that point could save him. His faith was in a parachute that was never buckled on. Faith in anything but an all-sufficient God can be just as tragic to us spiritually. Because it's only faith in Jesus Christ that we dare step into the dangerous excitement of this life. So here's what I want to ask you today. It's not enough to believe that the parachute can save you if you never buckle it on. So here's my question to you today. Would you like a parachute? Because you are falling through this life. And whether you believe the things that I've told you, not I went over things really fast today, and whether you intellectually agree or not, I, want, I believe with all my heart that whether you're watching this online or you're here in the room or you're over in the family venue, that in your heart there's something saying to you what that guy is saying is true. And here's what I'm saying ultimately is that there is the parachute that you need is the one who died for you in your place. They buried him. And on the third day, God raised him from the dead. And his name is Jesus Christ. He is a historical person who was born, who walked among us. The, the debate has been settled once and for all that he, whether or not he existed. He existed. And the question is, is what are you going to do with him? What are you going to do with this man who claimed to be God, who demonstrated not only through miracles but through rising from the dead, physically rising from the dead, that he is who he says he was? And why did all this happen? Because God so loved you that he gave his only begotten son. You know what? That's what fathers do. They love their children and they will do anything to save them, to love them, to reach them, to care for them. And that's what your heavenly father has done for you. Would you bow your heads with me today? If you're here today and you've never made Jesus Christ the Lord of your life, or maybe you're away from God, you've backslidden, you've turned your back on him, I want you to know, my friend, he has not turned his back on you. He never has. He's right where you left him, and he loves you, and he's there with open arms to receive you back. And he wrote you a letter called the Bible to tell you how much he loves you, to call you home and to teach you how to live and to give you a life that works. We call it abundant life. If you're here today and you've never made Jesus the Lord of your life, I'm going to pray the prayer of salvation. And if you say, Pastor, please include me in that prayer, 
Would you let me know who you are by just simply slipping your hand up real quickly? I'm not going to embarrass you, make you stand up or come to the front. But if you want me to include you in this prayer, raise your hand right now. Awesome. I got you. I see your hand. I see your hand, sir. God bless you. Any more want to join these two? God bless you. Three. Awesome. Four. See your hand. If you say, I believe Jesus is who he says he is, and I'm ready to give my life to him. Let his life, his word, fill me to give me meaning and to explain to me where I came from and how to live right from wrong and what my destiny is. You have all that available to you in receiving the person of Jesus Christ. No condemnation. Without him, we're doomed to certain death, eternal incarceration. But he paid the price. All you have to do is accept it. And you can go free today. Not free to do what you want to do, but free to be who you were meant to be. Anybody else want to join these four that raise their hand? One more time. God bless you. I see your hand. Five, six. Anybody watching us online, right where you are, pray with us today. Harvest Church, let's pray with these half dozen folks that have raised their hand. They're calling on the name of the Lord. They're being saved. Let's all say it together. Say, dear Heavenly Father, I believe in my heart that you sent Jesus to die in my place. But on the third day, you raised him from the dead. And I say, Jesus, you are my Lord. From this day forward, I'm all yours and you are mine. Fill me with your spirit. Give me the power I need to live this new life. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You know, there's a heaven, there's a party going on in heaven when people pray that. I mean, the angels, I don't know if they dance, if there's confetti, but man, we can be a part of that party and just rejoice. We rejoice with those of you who prayed that prayer. We say, welcome home, whether you're in the family venue online or in this room, we welcome. This is what it's all about, man. This is why we do what we do. There are people in our city that need Jesus. Did you know that?